Well, good evening, everyone. It is, uh, again, great to worship with you guys. If you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Keep your finger in Jonah, of course. But if you could turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. We will be in verses 38 through 41. That'll be the scripture that'll start us off as we go through the book of Jonah. So, Matthew 12, verses 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now let's pray before we get into our book. Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity that you've given us to worship on your day, Lord's Day. We pray that we would not take this for granted, but instead would be edified by your word, that we would be able to uh, glean from it what you would like us to see. We pray that it would be edifying to our lives, and that we'd see more of Christ and behold him more, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so... Again, we're one week at a time. We're going through a prophet a week, one prophet every evening. And as is evidently the custom, I'm going to give just a brief little outline of what the background of the book is. And then thankfully, because the pastors have given me two relatively small books, I can give a quick run-through of what happens throughout the entire thing. So, the book of Jonah. Who is the author? We assume that it is Jonah. Very fitting. Uh, There are some things in here that it seems only Jonah would really be able to know, such as the prayer that he utters in the belly of a fish. But about Jonah, he is the son of Amittai from Gath-Hefer. We know that he prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, which we can see in 2 Kings chapter 14. And as was mentioned before, he seems to be a contemporary of the other prophets Amos and Hosea as well which places the date of this book at around the early to mid-700s B.C. Uh, at this time, Israel is doing pretty good physically. They're gaining more land and they're living life, but unfortunately, spiritually, they are just bankrupt. Uh, Jeroboam II is not a very good king. He is a bad king. Now, that's the general background. That is the idea of what's happening here. Um, the intended audience is Nineveh, at least in the story is Nineveh, but also the intended audience is the people of Israel, as that is who the scriptures were originally written for. But then also it is for us, as 1 Corinthians 10 says, it was meant for our encouragement. So that is the overview of the book. But now let's uh, do a quick run through what's going on. Quick little story time. The book of Jonah is arguably one of the most famous books 
in the Bible, at least the story of Jonah and the whale or fish. Uh, But there's a lot in here, so let's just run through it. Uh, Jonah also is almost the complete opposite of what you would expect any other prophetic book to be, which we see at the very beginning. Uh, The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, as he does to basically every other prophet. And instead of Jonah doing what God says, like most prophets do, or even being hesitant, being like, ah, I'm not really prepared for this, Jonah just is the opposite, and he just runs the other direction. God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no, I don't want to go to Nineveh. Those are our enemies. That's Israel's enemies. I am not taking any risks that these guys are going to be saved because they're against us. So Jonah heads out, and he flees to Tarshish, and he's on a boat. He's flown around out there, and God sends a storm. And these waters of judgment are splashing around, and Jonah's asleep in the bottom of the ship, and the sailors are just trying to keep the boat alive. And eventually they go down to him and say, like, hey, get up here. Uh, Ask your God to help us. Maybe he'll save us from this storm. Uh, Eventually they figure out why the storm is coming. Jonah admits that he's trying to run away from God and that if they throw him overboard into the water, then the sailors will be saved and it'll quench God's wrath. Uh, The sailors ultimately, at first, don't do this, showing that they have more compassion for Jonah than really he does for Nineveh, which is an indictment on him. But eventually, after they try to keep the boat alive, they go, all right, we got to do it. And they toss him in the water, and the storm just stops. And the sailors praise God. God then sends a fish, and it comes, and it just swallows Jonah, takes him down into the water. Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. He prays a prayer. Eventually, he comes to grips of, all right, I got to go to Nineveh. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomits him back up onto the dry land. So then then Jonah, instead of going towards Tarshish, he goes back and he heads towards Nineveh. And he goes into Nineveh, and he preaches just a great sermon, five Hebrew words, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and that's it. The people of Nineveh hear it, and they repent of their sins, and they basically ask for God's forgiveness. Jonah goes outside of the city, uh, expecting to watch the fireworks from a distance, if you will, like Sodom and Gomorrah type stuff. And he gets pretty upset because God decides he's not going to destroy Nineveh because they repented. So Jonah's angry. God God asks him, is it okay for you to be angry? And Jonah's like, yes. And he sits under the shade and God makes a plant Shades Jonah. Jonah likes the plant, and Jonah's happy. God brings a worm, cuts down the plant. Jonah's sad again. And then God asks him again, Are you good to be angry? And Jonah's like, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord rips him basically and says, You pity this plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And that's the end of the book of Jonah. I've heard it described as just the worst ending in Scripture, if you will. Obviously, it's not the worst ending in Scripture because it's inspired, it's all great endings. But this, there's like no conclusion, really. It just ends with 
God hitting Jonah with this, and then he's done. That's basically it. So, what we're going to do today is we're going to split what we see here into three distinct parts. We're going to first look at some theological implications, which uh, we also did in the book of Joel. Then we're going to look at some Christological connections. And then we are going to look at some things for our own improvement or application, as it is most often called. So first, we will do theological implications. Now, actually, before I do this, though, it is worth mentioning. Um, when we do these type of theological implications or the Christological connections, we aren't just doing it as a, like a information dump, basically, of like, oh, what's it saying in here? When we do this, what it should be doing is it should be showing us the things that we should look for in the book of Jonah. Obviously, there's more than what I can put down here in the ideally 30-ish minutes that we have, but... What, what this does is it gives us an idea of who God is, who Christ is, and then we can think on those things throughout the week and try and see more of the glory of Christ as we live, and that will lead us into more worship. And then the application, obviously, is the same, but with physical actions. But so first, theological implications. The first thing that we notice in the book of Jonah is that salvation is of the Lord. That is the theme. That's the big key of the entire book. Salvation is of the Lord. We see this in chapter 2, verse 9, when he says in his prayer to the Lord, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the theme of this. However, that is also the theme of basically all of scripture as well. So specifically here for Jonah, it's to the nations. It's to Gentiles. Salvation is not only a of the Lord for Israel, but it's also to Gentiles. There are two main groups of people here who receive salvation, and that would be the sailors in chapter 1, of whom were crying out to their own gods, each to their own gods, so they're not exactly, you know, followers of Yahweh in this instance. They're pagans, and yet, through Jonah's sacrifice, they're saved, they repent, and they believe in God. And then also, obviously, Nineveh. Nineveh gets the uh, gospel from Jonah, and they repent. And this is an important uh, thing to realize in this text, because this is an idea that ultimately the Jews did not like. They don't exactly like the idea of the Gentiles being wrapped into salvation here. Uh, Jonah himself is a good example of this. Instead of going and preaching the gospel to God's enemies, Jonah goes, no, I'm going that way, and he runs the other direction. Um, similarly, if you look in Acts chapter 22, we get this uh, story of Paul is out, and he's telling some Jews exactly his story, essentially what his testimony is. And in there... He gets all the way through and he's examining his life and he gets to the end and he says, and he, God, said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And up to this word they listened to him and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. 
for he should not be allowed to live. So the Jews, as soon as they hear that salvation is getting sent to the Gentiles, or not God's people, they freak out and they try and kill Paul. And that's basically antithetical to what God is showing here, where he saves the Gentiles. Another aspect of that is found in chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me. In chapter 4 with the plant and Jonah. And now Leslie can attest to this if you ever ask her. I labored over this passage and wondering what the plant was about. And ultimately I could not get around it. But basically the plant story is kind of a picture of Israel and Nineveh being the opposite God's enemies. Because Jonah is out here and God gives him a plant. Jonah doesn't do anything for the plant. God is the one who raises up this plant and God is the one who knocks down this plant for size. And Jonah gets super upset about this and God says, you didn't do anything for this plant and yet you're super upset about it getting cut down and yet you don't want me to save all these people that are over here that are basically not God's people. I think in context of what's happening with Amos where there are a bunch of judgments against Israel being thrown out there and Hosea where judgments are being thrown out there too. I think it's a good parallel there of where the plant is actually a picture of Jonah likes this. Jonah really likes Israel evidently because he's willing to die instead of preach the gospel to their enemies. So what we see there again is just God's salvation for the Gentiles and he's doing that even if he decides to knock Israel, again, down for size, which they're going to go into exile relatively soon after this book is written. But then second, similarly, theological implications, we also see that the Lord reigns over all in this passage. This book is a good reminder of God's sovereignty. God is very sovereign in this book. He's very sovereign everywhere, but he's especially shown to be sovereign in this book. You can go through basically every part of the, I mean the world really. He's in charge of the wind. He's in charge of the waters. He's in charge of plants growing. He's in charge of the worm that goes and eats the plant. He's in charge of the heat. He's in charge of the fish. Not only eating Jonah, he's in charge of when the fish throws up onto the beach or spits him up. He's in charge of men and their repentance. He's in charge of everything. That is also a good reminder for us because oftentimes we may feel nervous about the world, what's going on in the world. Maybe something isn't in God's control. No, that is not the case, and Jonah shows that to us. God is in control of everything. If God is in control of the worm going to eat the plant, God is in control of everything. But then a third theological implication that we see here is the mercies of God. This book is also heavy on God's mercy towards people. It's shown throughout the book, Jonah immediately disobeys God and just does the opposite, and God doesn't smite him immediately. He gives him mercy. He lets him live. The sailors are also in a bad situation. They're going to die. God gives them mercy. They live. Jonah, a second time, tries to die, jumped in the water. God swallows him with a fish. He lives. He spits him out. He lives. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Nineveh does not deserve to live. 
but God causes them to repent. He gives them mercy. They live again. Even when he's in the outskirts of the town, Jonah is still given a plant for a bit there that he's able to sit under and rest in the cool. He's given mercy there as well. So the Lord's mercies are very prevalent here, and that shows to us as well that God's mercies are abundant. He's not stingy with his mercies. He's actively giving mercy to everybody every breath we take. The Lord is not holding it in like, oh man, I'm going to dispense a little bit of mercy there. No, he's giving it exceedingly. He's giving it all over the place. But so those are just three of the theological implications. There are, again, a lot. But for time, we'll move on to our second point, and that would be the Christological connections in the book of Jonah. Now, again, I'm only going to give three here. There are so many connections in the book of Jonah, all of which have legitimate ties to the New Testament. So I encourage you to go through, read through it, see basically what you can find in there that you can connect. But these three that I'm going to touch on are the big categories. Everything else is kind of found within that, in these categories. But it's a good uh, overview of what the Christological connections are, seeing Jesus in there, as I've heard it called. Also, these three, um, I, have the, I found them from, I want to give credit where it's due, Benjamin Keach. He was an old Baptist minister. He signed the 1689 Confession of Faith. He has these written down for three of his connections for Jonah and Christ. So first, Jonah, a dove in name, Christ was the same in nature. So the name Jonah actually means dove. Like that's the literal meaning of it. Like Isaac means laughter. Jonah means dove. You see that connection between him and Christ. Though where Jonah is just a dove in name, he doesn't exactly resemble dove-like qualities, if you will. He'd rather have people die. He's not exactly a peaceable fellow. Um, He's not for life. Though he may have the spirit, it does not seem like he acts like it. But where he's like that, Christ is the exact opposite. Christ is the Prince of Peace. He gives life. When he was baptized, the dove literally descended on him, the Holy Spirit. So while Jonah here is not the good dove, he's only the dove in name, Christ, on the other hand, is the dove in all other aspects. So the name of Jonah points to the person of Christ. But then second, in their work here, and this is a quote from Keach, he says, Jonah was three days and nights in the whale's belly, yet at last came forth alive. So Christ was three days and three nights in the bowels or heart of the earth, and yet rose again alive. And again, we look back then to Matthew 12, verses 38 through 41. The Pharisees are there and they're asking for a sign. They want Jesus to give them a sign and Christ gives them the sign of Jonah and he just references Jonah. So whereas Jonah, again, three days and nights in the belly of Sheol is the word that he uses. Christ, three days and nights in the belly of the earth. He's in Sheol and they both 
rise again to life. So what Jonah did under the waters of judgment, if you will, is what Christ did under the, wa- under the waters of God's wrath or under God's wrath, and he comes out alive just as Jonah comes out alive. Uh, similarly, in that type of scheme of things, we see the very beginning when Jonah he gets onto the boat and he goes under the boat and he falls asleep and a storm comes and the sailors freak out and they say, hey, come on, call on your God, see if he'll save us. That is almost ver- verbatim the same as Christ. In He goes into the boat, he goes asleep underneath the boat. A storm comes. The disciples are trying to save the boat and they're freaking out and they go down and they're like, what are you doing? You know, help us out here. And Christ, instead of doing what Jonah has to do, where he has to call on God to stop the storm, Christ just gets up and he stops it. And that's it. So another picture of Christ being the greater Jonah. Christ is a greater Jonah because he has the dove nature as opposed to the dove name. He's better than Jonah, whereas Jonah was in the sea in the belly of the fish and came out alive. Christ died and rose again. And then where Jonah has to calm the storm by calling on God, Christ just calms the storm because he is God. And then a third Christological point here. Jonah preached repentance to a wicked people. So did Christ. It's fairly straightforward. Both Jonah and Christ are prophets. Jonah's a prophet. Christ is the prophet, the eschatological prophet, the end-time prophet. Both of them, we notice, have the same audience. Jonah's preaching to Nineveh. Those are God's enemies. Christ also was preaching to God's enemies, wicked people. And you'll also notice that both of them are extremely effective in their message. Jonah gets basically every preacher's dream of he preaches five words and the entire city is just up in repentance. Yet, while he's upset about it, Christ, on the other hand, everyone who hears the gospel message, all those who the Father has given to him will come. So it's an effective gospel message for who it's intended. So those are the Christological connections that we have there. Again, I encourage you, go through the book, read through it, see Christ in the passage. It's a great way to see his glory, see the glory of Christ. Uh, We have a study going through the week where we're going through the glory of Christ by John Owen. And one of his big things there is when we read the scriptures, we should try and see Christ in there so we can see the glory of Christ so then we can worship him more. But then we will move on to application, some applicatory points to finish us off. Uh, The first one, I'm not saying I'm going to steal it from Thomas because I also had it written down before Thomas taught this morning. But it's a similar story to the book of Acts with the Jerusalem Council and how the Jews feel towards the Gentiles. And basically the question that we should ask ourselves is, what is our attitude towards the lost? Are we more like Jonah or are we more like Christ towards the lost? In short, basically, is there anybody who we don't really want to actually be saved? 
for Jonah in particular here, he's in kind of a tough spot. I kind of sympathize with him in the sense of Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Syria is not the good guys. And Assyria is going to come through Israel relatively soon. And Jonah probably has an idea of this where he's like, they're dangerous. I don't want, I don't want them to hear the gospel because then, you know, you might save them. We don't want that. But in a similar way, we have kind of, we can be tempted to have similar feelings towards enemies of God here on earth now. Um, I'm sure in your mind you have someone who you're thinking, man, I wouldn't be the most upset if they didn't repent and turn to God. Like, it wouldn't be that heartbreaking. But that's not the attitude that we should probably be having when we share the gospel with people or we bring the good news of salvation to people. We should hope that all sorts of people are saved. So we should want to be more in a dove-like nature like Christ and want life for those people as opposed to Jonah who doesn't care if the people die. Second, this uh, book gives us a good reminder that we should be taking hold of the mercies of God in our daily lives. Um, Again, mercy is throughout. Everybody's receiving mercy here. But do we really think in our daily lives about all the mercies that God has given us? And this is not just a a one-time thing. It's not just when you're saved. It is when you're saved, but it's not just when you're saved because you're saved initially, but then day by day, he keeps giving you new mercy. In Lamentations, his mercies are new every morning. He keeps giving you mercies every time you fellowship with other believers, every time you get to read the scriptures, every time you pray, every time we take communion, every time someone gets baptized. Every time you grow in sanctification at all is a mercy of God. Every time you breathe is a mercy of God. Do we really take hold of that and think about the mercies of God and thank him for the mercies that he has given us? Uh, Another thing to note, um, I'm going to quote Martin Luther here. Uh, Speaking of assurance, he just says, remember your baptism. So the first chapter here with the waters and all this is going on, there's a string of connection going from Noah's Ark to Moses in the basket, the Exodus, water throughout the Bible. But basically, it all culminates in Christ's death where he goes under God's judgment and comes out alive, which we see when we have baptisms. We symbolize going under with Christ and then coming out a new creation. So if you're ever struggling with assurance, Jonah is a good passage for assurance because just as Jonah went down into the waters as a sacrifice for the sailors and went down into the fish and then came up alive in the same way Christ has done the same and us in Christ, so we are alive in Christ as opposed to having to worry about being swept away in the storm of God's judgment. And then just two more things. First, to any unbelievers, uh, I would repeat the sermon that Jonah gives. He says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Uh, The same can be said for us today. 
maybe not 40 days. We don't know when God's judgment is going to ultimately come, when we're going to either go to him or he's going to come to us. But at some undisclosed amount of time, every kingdom that every enemy of God has made in their own lives is going to get swept away and he's going to judge them for it unless they repent, which is the assumed portion of this sermon. So yet any undisclosed amount of time, there is a time coming, if you are not a believer, where you are going to be judged and your kingdom shall be overthrown unless you repent and turn to Christ for salvation. He went under the waters of judgment for sinners. So if you trust in him, you will go under with him and come out alive. But of course, for believers, let's uh, continue to use the book of Jonah as a great opportunity to worship the Lord in his mercy, his sovereignty, his salvation of sinners, and the work that he's done for us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Jonah and what you have given us in that book. We thank you for the picture that Jonah is to us of who Christ ultimately would be, only who Christ is a better version of. We pray that, again, we would see more of Christ as we go on throughout our weeks, and that we'd love him more for what he's done for us in his life for us, his death for us, his resurrection for us, and his constant intercession and mercies given towards us. We thank you again for him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.